0: It's my pleasure to welcome Vanessa Barker here today to give the first of the Hillary term All Souls Criminology Seminars. Um, Vanessa is a docent and Associate Professor of Sociology at Stockholm University and Associate Director of Border Criminologies. She's well known here at the centre because she spent a year visiting um, as a visiting fellow and also works with a number of us on various different projects. Vanessa's research has always focused um, around uh, different themes, uh, issues to do with questions of democracy, penal order, and more recently um, on the welfare state and border control and the criminalisation and penalisation of migrants. Um, Today she's going to be talking to us about her new book, uh, Nordic Nationalism and Penal Order. There you go, it's on the screen <laughs> as well. Um, and so this is more or less hot off the press. I think it came out at the end of
1: last year, didn't it? So no, yes, November, 11th. All right, there you go. So so we're very lucky
0: to have Vanessa here with us today to talk about her, her new work, and I will hand it over to you. Harry, there is a... Oh,
1: Kate, there are chairs. One chair at the front. Um, thank you, Mary and the, the Centre for Criminology for the invitation. It's really my pleasure to be back here because... While I was visiting, I was working on a proposal, and then to return with the actual um, product is, <laughs> is actually satisfying yeah, for, for myself. And also, um, Tom Sutton is here from Routledge, so I would also like to thank Routledge for really supporting the development of the book and the production process. So um, Tom is here, and I'm really excited about um, the book and having this chance to talk to you about some um, some of the ideas that we've, we've been in conversation about, but also some developments that occurred since then. So I want to, um, in this talk, give give the, the big picture of the book and the argument, um, and then open up for some discussions. And I think that I've been giving some talks already about the book, and I've already received some um, pushback, some... Uh, <laughs> Some, some more or less aggressive than others. So uh, very curious to hear to hear what this what this crowd or different people in this crowd might might have to say. So uh, the book is about um, about Sweden and the, the migration or the refugee crisis that occurred in 2015. Um, but it the migration, the refugee crisis that was going on in 2015, it's really an occasion to look deeper into the society, right, and the changing nature of welfare states in this period of globalization and global mobility. I um, framed the book um, about the, around this um, fall, of, it opens up in the fall of 2015, and this already seems, we're in 2018, the fall of 2015 seems a long time ago. I feel like the world has really been transformed really quickly. But in the summer of 2015 and in the fall, this was this period, in some ways a, a, a hopeful period, when um, Europe was opening its walls to people fleeing Syria, also Afghanistan, and there the was refugees welcome, the civil society movements that were spontaneously emerging in large cities across Germany and Sweden as well. And there, there was this period where, yes, Europe was, was opening, opening its doors and opening its borders, In in Sweden, this was a a speech made in September by our Prime Minister, um, Leven and it was a very, he is, he he comes from, he was the president of one of the most famous labor unions in Sweden. He's not well known for being a kind of charismatic speaker. This speech was the best speech of his life. I mean, it really moved people and, you know, brought people to tears. It was a very moving speech about the end of the Cold War and tearing down walls and What kind of Europe are we going to be? We're a Europe. We're going to open our borders. We're going to bring in, yes, anyone coming from Syria is welcome in Sweden. Um, And he he said, uh, my Europe doesn't build walls. That's not my Europe. It was very, again, very powerful speech from again someone who's not wasn't well known for being a charismatic speaker. This is um, in Medwed This is which means the Citizens square. So it was also very symbolically resonant that he gave a speech there with uh, pro refugee supporters, both in the government, civil society, and and um, refugees and migrants, asylum seekers themselves. And then there was a march walking hand in hand. This was in September. Um, Over the summer and then through the fall, there was a a large increase in the number of asylum seekers who came into Sweden. The summer was, again, very very dramatic with increases in the... Sweden is a population of 10 million, so it's a kind of small-scale country. Um, The number started increasing dramatically over the summer, and then it reached its peak in the fall, about 10,000 people entering the country to seek asylum in one week. And this was for the the Sweden Migration Board and the, the government agencies... A very high number and a very uh, and a high peak. This um, graph, the blue line is the year I'm referring to in 2015. So it is uh, stamp 2017 is the the blue. Did I say blue or green? You said blue. I did. Okay, yeah. Um, so the the dark blue, right? That this is the that the, this wave, right? That comes in. This was um, 2016 that's coming, and then these were the year. So you can see, I mean, just graphically very quickly, that this was an unusual pattern, even though Sweden had been relatively open, right, prior to this, to um, asylum seekers coming in. But this increase was was important. So by the fall, you have these increases, this peak in November. um, And then by mid-November, end of, um, this is just an image of reception, large numbers again coming in, the police migration agents there to meet people in this large scale. Processing By mid-November, um, this speech by the prime minister is t- takes a 180. He basically says in another speech, um, the government now considers that the current situation with a large number of people entering into the country in a relatively short time poses a serious threat to public order and national security. So this is within months of his prior speech, which he invites Refugees and the asylum seekers to come in, and now he's basically saying they pose a threat to public order and national security, and this is the motivation to close the border with Denmark, which had not been closed since World War II. So D- Denmark and Sweden on the on the um, the border there are been close neighbors beyond uh, the European Union, right? The Schengen, right? There's Nordic cooperation. The border had never had not been closed since World War II. They closed the border um, and install ID checks within the Schengen area, passport controls, which hadn't, again, been, been in op- operation. Restrictions on permits um, becoming temporary permits. So if you were entering to seek asylum, you received a temporary permit, um, which would be subject to evaluation within a year. So they I mean, just created a lot of paperwork for themselves as well, right? So they created um, temporary permits and restrictions on family reunifications. And they were going to, the prediction was it would increase deportations or an expulsions for people who no longer had a legal right to remain. Um, and this is, in fact, what, what they did. The estimate was, so oh, the, the peak figure, the number that had come in to seek asylum in this period was 163,000 people. And then when they closed the border, they basically said, OK, in order to get our numbers down, we're going to deport 80,000. Right? Just kind of a convenient number. Um, of what was what had come in this the number was not as high as that but this was what was estimated in order to get get the numbers, <coughs> in. but basically what the government instituted through uh, legal restrictions and practices at the border blocking access and increasing removals right to um, get what they said get the system under control the question is um, this is just an image from the from Kastrup if anyone has flown in through Copenhagen this um, this is uh, a it's in Denmark, but it, this is, these are the trains that go across the bridge, um, another, uh, go across the bridge into Sweden, and this is a, a fence. And I also think, just graphically, this is important to show as well. Come back to this fence. This is not a wall, right? So this wasn't a concrete Berlin Wall, but this was a fence that had not existed between these countries inside the Schengen, inside Nordic cooperation, um, in order to prevent people from seeking asylum, from claiming claiming their rights. So why did this happen? Um, this very dramatic shift um, from—I mean, it's one thing to say we really don't want asylum seekers here, and then install restrictions. I think it's a really different ball game to say, "Come on in," and then close the border um, and increase the, basically the, the violence against these people. But so why is this happening? The government's explanation in the immediate—you know—period of time in November and has since carried on was that this was a, a system overload. The system's going to collapse. Um, there were too many people. The, the migration board was un, unprepared. There was lack of coordination across agencies. So at, there was a lot of concern about the security and reception. With, with people coming in, With you had Red Cross there, volunteers. You had other, uh, excuse me, civil society organizations there. You had government officials there. You had the police. But this was not very well coordinated. Um, in terms of authority, in terms of jurisdiction, in terms of procedure, and these these changes occurred very quickly, where you actually had volunteers who the day one day were legally transporting asylum seekers into a reception center, the next day they were being charged with a crime for trafficking, or for smuggling people into the border. So it was a very cha- it was a very chaotic situation, which contributed to the sense of disorder. And in Sweden, it's a it's a highly ordered society, and so this. System collapse was very real um, impact to the people working in reception, the people asylum seekers themselves, right? In, in terms of how order, how orderly the system was, assigning housing, assigning uh, workers to their case. Um, it went beyond the reception. This idea about system collapse, right? Inside the government, government elites were very concerned with the impact on society, all society institutions. So if you have this large increase in the population, there were concerns about the uh, police services, the emergency rooms, the schools, the hospitals, the doggies, the preschool, um, health care. And these are in these documents about, from, from the political elites in this discussion, um, all of these are social, core and social institutions were, were under threat by this, this increase of the population in um, and, and such a short period of time. The the system overload system collapse. When I when I first heard it in the in the in the um, in these public statements, I didn't take it too seriously. But I have to say, in, in doing the research and going back through the records, um, this was a real impact on how people saw, perceived their jobs and what they thought the society was was capable of doing. It's not a sociological explanation, right? And this is the task for for us as social analysts, right? The government it was a real technical explanation about system collapse. But the question is, the sociological question is, right, what are the social conditions that allowed for this, that brought this about? You know, what, what are, Why was the government so underprepared? Why wasn't there a coordination strategy? This is not, it was, it was not a mystery that there is you know, conflict around the world and people are fleeing, and it's not a mystery that hundreds of people are dying in the Mediterranean crossing borders trying to get into Europe. <clears throat> Sweden had also experienced a previous refugee crisis um, during the former Yugoslav war, where they also feared a system collapse and had temporarily clo- closed, uh, thank you, closed the border. So the question is really, you know, what are the social conditions with, which allow for them to be so, maybe some would say naive, but also just underprepared, that the scale of this is large, right? We're, we're really dealing with large movements of people and governments at this day and age. Why aren't they prepared for this? Why aren't we thinking like the Great Depression? The Works Progress uh, Administration, which put thousands, uh, tens of thousands of unemployed people to work on government projects, like wh- why weren't these things sort of in order? What, what's really going on? There are other um, arguments coming from different, um, different literatures, different uh, pieces of this. Who would, who basically say Sweden? It's, it's unlike, it's just like every other country. This is an argument about the global North closing itself off to the global South. We just you know, rich white people, we just don't really want to have poor black people and people coming from the global, global south in Sweden, um, that this is part of a, a larger trend. I'm gonna take issue with some of that, those, those critiques. Um, there are other very common arguments about why we have restrictive border control, why we see a, a crackdown against migration across Europe, North America, Australia. This has to do with neoliberalism, that this is all about kind of global uh, economic imperatives, which which are driving states to um, increase restrictions on migration. I'm also going to take some issue with uh, these types of arguments as well in the Nordic context, because in the Nordic context, welfare states are strong. Um, And it's the, the exact opposite, I would argue, about what's going on, that it's not about neoliberalism, but rather it's about the preservation of the welfare state itself. The welfare state sustainability, the solvency of the welfare state. So in the Nordic countries, right? these economies are strong. Um, the bene- benefits, resources, the distribution, these are very highly functioning societies in terms of their affluence, in terms of the welfare state. So we also can get into some argument about this, but there have, has been increased inequality in the welfare state, but the overall purpose of the government, the po- overall purpose of the rationale of the government has maintained for well over 100 years, well over 100 years practically, this governing strategy about taking care of the population, protection and prevention against um, ills. So I'm gonna discuss that a little bit more. Um, So my argument is setting up that, rather than thinking about these external or global forces, that there's a need to understand what's going on inside the welfare state itself. We haven't really understood this very well. Um, what are the, the social conditions that, that brought it about. I'd also like to highlight this point, which I was um, really inspired by or motivated by. Eric Kleinenberg who's a sociologist who's written a, a book about the heat wave um, in the 1990s in the United States. And he analyzed the heat wave to say, well, the heat wave, this common explanation why people died, mortality rates were high because it was a climate, a natural disaster. But he says people died in the dead bodies. These are reflective of social fault lines in the society that they just don't die because of natural disaster, who's most vulnerable It tends to reflect where we are divided in the society. And I re- rereading that book for a methods, <laughs> methods course, it made me think about the, the border closing as well. And yes, I think that's true in Sweden. I mean, the, the fault lines are there. Like who, who, what are the fault lines in Sweden? And how does the border closing and the harm that's imposed, how does this reflect right, the social fault lines? in the, In the society, um, a couple of other methodological notes on this uh, on this theme. so I want to understand the border closing in this broad context, and Sweden becomes an obvious case to do it because they actually closed the border right it 's part of a continuum of restrictive migration policies, but it 's very dramatic so it 's intrinsically interesting. Why would a country that was once so open, so egalitarian has this um, history of being open to migration? Why would it do this? We know, or if you study comparative welfare states, Sweden is also a very generous welfare state. So there's something um, interesting and different about Sweden than some of the other countries we we know about. And most of you, if you're coming from criminology or punishment, it's well known that in the Nordic countries, they tend to have more mild, inhumane um, penal sanctioning. Well, when we start to look at this intersection of migration and border controls with the penal system, that entire image starts to come undone. So Sweden becomes a very a critical case right, to analyze these processes. Um, because it should conform right, to expectations, it should, should have been kept open, but it doesn't. They put up this fence. Um, and I argue because it doesn't conform to what we might expect, we actually need to generate some new theories. Right, The ones that we have don't really fit very well. And that people I think contort themselves to make what we have already fit fit the case, and it 's often with 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 cases with the dynamics that are there, we need to take them in, in inductively or abductively right? what 's going on inside them that we can understand rather than apply right, some pre existing theory so this is how methodologically approached the the the, um, the study the other note of Methods, which I think is important, is the t- bringing in the temporal temporality or time horizons. So, when we think about social conditions that bring something about, or the co- social causes that bring an event about, in kind of popular understandings or journalistic accounts, we tend to focus on the immediate present, what happened right in this, right now, right in proximate. And those are short-term mm-hmm. causes, and this chart comes from Paul Pearson, who, who was bringing in kind of a, a much, I, I think, sophisticated view about time. You can look at short term causes that lead to short term mm-hmm. outcomes, or you can have short term causes that have long term outcomes. But he's really pushing us as sociologists or social theorists to look at long term causes, the societal structures, right, social organization, that can have either short term outcomes and long term outcomes. So just to put this concretely, the the system collapse argument that I gave you, that is a kind of short-term cause and a short-term outcome. <clears throat> system overload, right? Something happens as a crisis and then boom, the, the borders close. Again, I don't find that to be sufficient because we need to dig deeper into why weren't they prepared. And so I'm focusing on the long-term. So what that meant for my analysis was that in order to understand the social dynamics that are going on, it wasn't enough to look at the immediate politics, although I did, or the immediate structure. No, it wasn't enough to look at 10 years ago, but actually to look at this foundation of the welfare state, to kind of get the long durée if you study history, right? These long-term social processes that occur over time that tend to repeat themselves and create certain patterns of action, right? And this is very much, um, I think, uh, operating in the Swedish, the Swedish case. Um, oh, I thought, I thought that was my last methodological point, but um, <laughs> <Hi>. <laughs> Aaron Kleidenberg, he was, he was very much an inspiration. But the um, another methodological point, which I think is uh, I find interesting and fascinating, is this complex causality coming from from Mills. So again, in the Swedish case, we've tended to look, or maybe we, I don't want to speak about researchers studying Britain, but we've tended to look at institutions in isolation. So we want to study the prison, we want to study punishment, we want to study the police, we want to study this or this institution, and we tend to study it in all the dynamics that are going on inside. Fascinating and complex, but those are sitting in relation to other institutions or fields, if you prefer field theory. Um, and what I argue and write about in the book is that in, in Sweden, when we start to look at uh, the welfare state and its in its inter- interaction or in this field with penal order the criminal justice system and membership which includes migration but also ethnic minorities and also um, it includes ideas about worthiness that have nothing to do with ethnicity or migration this has to do with being a good worker right a worthy a worthy citizen so the membership category is broad but when we bring these fields together or look at these interactions this also changes our understanding so the Nordic exceptionalism has tended to right view look at the, the, the penal order, and then see the welfare state and put them together, right? But they've actually looked at them separately. But when we start to see how they intersect or the these combinations, that if you can see the kind of darkened intersecting areas, these change the view of the whole. Right? So this was also a, a way, an anal, analytical way into this problem to get a sense how these institutions work. And what I basically, uh, going back 100 years to the development of the welfare state, the history of migration policy, um, understandings of how the criminal justice system has worked, that um, I argue that in order to understand this dramatic event, the border closing, and these larger processes of restrictive migration control, this again is really connected to this internal logic of the welfare state, that we need to understand the dynamics within, um, that there's a long, there's a, the welfare state has a double side of policing and welfare. The state has this double side of taking care of the population, but also of policing the population. But this is, often goes hand in hand. Um, this Again, in, in Sweden, there's been a very long history, not of a minimal welfare state and a high police state, but how these institutions, the welfare state and, say, the policing, have worked together in tandem um, over time. A very long history, right of state intervention, going back to forced sterilization, to control of alcohol, to control of drugs, um, for the better of the population, for, the, for everybody's in everybody's best interest. Also, I think this internal logic, a point that may not be well appreciated, which I found I, I found a discovery in reading some of the historical records, was this um, particular individual attachment to the welfare state. So we all welfare state is written about as you know having really uh, kind of some group solidarity, everybody's the same, and this is why they're so generous. That's not really the foundation of the welfare state, right? It's about this individual liberation through the welfare state, freedom from dependencies, from the family, from the church, um, from your employer. Um, these independencies which impacted the individual, the individual then becomes very much attached to. The well-being of the welfare state itself and the sustainability of that welfare state. Because you, as a person, individual in Sweden, it really matters, right? How well the state, the welfare state, how it survives, how it functions. Um, your own future, right? In terms of your your pension, um, it's very much tied to this well-functioning state. But there's a very strong individual attachment to the welfare state itself, and so when it has come under threat, um, different kinds of political or social threats. Two is idea about sustainability. Um, this is, has take, takes on a personal edge. So you know, just in in talking with, with people who might say, well, I of course I'm you know in favor of immigration. I, I'm not a racist, but um, the, the push comes to shove, they're going to choose the welfare state over the idea of some idea about about human rights or human security. The welfare state is also looking historically as a national project, and this may, it, it, from this point of view, it may seem obvious, right? Because we've organized nation states, and welfare states are within that framework. But at the time in the 1930s, there was really an international workers' movement, and in Sweden, there was a choice, a conflict about internationalization, about a class struggle versus a national identity. And the Sweden, just the historical, um, the historical story here is that. Instead of making it about a class struggle, what was brilliant about the Social Democrats was they made it a national struggle. So again, the the individual attachment is because the national identity is wrapped up in the welfare state. This is a source of pride that it has been generous, that it is affluent, that this is something if you meet a Swede traveling somewhere or or, or an academic, you may be familiar with this idea about the welfare state. It's a source of national identity, national pride but it was a brilliant political maneuver because it got the entire population committed to this idea of sustaining itself, but of contributing and of equalizing social relations. This wasn't, say, in the United States, which was a means-tested welfare state, only the very poor and the unworthy, but this would be everybody. So this has implications because it's a, a national project for everybody to equalize. Um, This is contemporary picture. So even some scholars and social critics will argue that Sweden is just caught up in this kind of neoliberal paradigm as well, and there's been transformation of the welfare state and retrenchment and neoliberal policies. But this has to be put into perspective and into scope. There has been increased inequality, but it's happening around the margins, and this has to do with the very wealthy But the top 1%, their wealth has grown because of the tax policies. But the broad middle has maintained itself, right? And the spending on the broad middle has maintained itself. And the rates are, the spending is comparable to what it was about 20 years ago. So there have been reforms. So one thing you might think, well, hasn't there been privatization of of schooling? Privatization in Sweden means that the government transfers the money they would have spent on a, oh, I should say state school, right? Mm -hmm. So uh, a state school... Receives a certain amount of money per pupil. Privatization simply means that money that would have gone to the state school now goes to the, what we call the free school or the private school. It's not that you as an individual pay anything, so it's not a separation in that way. It's it's the the money is just moved into this private into a private um, into a private school. Not without controversy, but it's also the the scale in the, in the perspective. The welfare state is also very strong. If anybody loses their job tomorrow, there are protections and mechanisms in place. And this radically is, is very ra- radically different than a place like the United States, which many people, millions of people do not actually have health care. Um, there are not protections, right, if they lose their job. So it is a, there's been a restructuring, but it has not been a whole scale re- re- retract, retraction, a retrenchment of the welfare state. And it is precisely this affluence and well-being that is so vital to the population. Like they want to maintain this wealth um, and this um, uh, this affluence. <laughs> right. I know I said in another talk, but this was actually my neighborhood right. <laughs> <laughs> over there on that on that I'm surprised to see it in the paper because Swedes they don't think of themselves as li- living in this kind of glittery Wealth, but you know th- 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 this is a very affluent society, and the idea that you couldn't take in people who are fleeing persecution—you um, know—rationally, I think it's very difficult to to, to manage. So this idea, right, of the welfare state, it's really central to individual attachment, <laughs> um, welfare state, welfare state sustainability. That this is what drives a lot of these policies. We want to look out for it. This engine. Right. This has brought prosperity. It's brought development. It's brought prestige and status. We want to maintain this, so we're going to protect this bubble that we're in, and really protect who has access to the bubble and who who doesn't, um, because we're again. The, this is a very high quality of life, and it really matters, right? Who who enters and who has access, and that I make these arguments in the book that this is a a logic which is I think maybe underappreciated where e- equality can, or well-being or affluence here can drive exclusion. That it's not that Swedes believe that people are unequal or that there's just this rampant inequality in society and so we use the tools of criminal justice system to deal with inequality, although there's certainly a piece of that. What's partly driving this is that we wanted to sustain this equality of well-being for everybody. In order to do that, we're gonna make sure to not let everybody in because it's going to be a drain on on the resources and identity. Who has access to that bubble? So, looking inside um, the welfare state, trying to get this internal logic um, and understanding what it means to the people involved, um, I think it's also connected to, or partly um, what what came out of this was, again, the connection between the welfare state and how punishment or criminal justice or penal power operates in this context. And in order to explain the border closing and larger restrictions, um, I developed this concept of penal nationalism. Now the term itself, Lynn Haney uh, wrote about in the context of Eastern Europe and Hungary and Central Europe, trying to restore a sense of national sovereignty in the face of European Union integration. So she wrote about a a similar process. Um, I developed this uh, term uh, in the the Swedish context, but I think it has broader implications to argue about how and why these tools of criminal justice are being used to, to do this work, right? To protect that bubble, right? to do the sorting of membership and belonging, right? Who's going to have access? Who's going to make it inside? Um, the penal power here, right, is used not as a replacement for the welfare state, as we know from, from Louis Vacant's work and others who write about neoliberalism, but rather penal power is used to advance the interests of the welfare state. So they often they are going together, and again, just a historical point, I stumbled upon this as well in the 1960s when you had labor migration in Sweden, booming economy, mass development, modernization, in migration. You also had an expanding prison population, right? And if we really thought that you know these worked in um, in, in, in inverse relation, then what we would have seen kind of decrease in the prison population at that time. But so in Sweden, there's a long history of these, uh, these, these um, institutions working hand in hand. And as I said, right, this is really about uh, welfare state solvency for insiders um, to preserve social security. And then in this context, I think social security is has a higher value than human security. It's not, a, it's not, a, it's not an all or nothing, but when push comes to shove again, they're going to, the Swedish government are going to opt for social security. And this word triket comes from, it's a Swedish word. It has a very broad meaning in Sweden, both economic security, so this idea of what we think about the welfare state, um, providing protection um, in social well-being. But it has this, again, of ideas about trust and attachment that you feel secure in your social relations. That then you can be free. If you feel secure, this is the way for individual liberty. So again, it's kind of the heart of what the welfare state is doing. It's providing the security for individual freedom, um, and again, the ultimate value and driver here. So, Sweet, the government was basically willing to draw this fence to protect, right, Who's inside, um, and willing, and they were willing to impose, I would say, this outward harm or impose insecurity on others in the process because they're holding on to that to that value. Um, Penal nationalism, right? It's also this. Um, important here, using penal power to uphold the welfare state, it's not only about the welfare state's sustainability, but it's the insiders, the membership, who has access, and the particular kind of people, which people. So you have a long history, again, of uh, non-citizens, non-members, some ethnic minorities, those with the least political power, are the most vulnerable. And I, I want to highlight here in Sweden, again, this is not a story of only of or just of racial animus, because it also has had a long history of being open to migration. It's a duality, a ambivalence, and there's different historical periods where they've been open and closed. When the welfare state has been threatened, this is when we see these, these types of uh, closures. Um, right, so penal nationalism, right? So the, the, the state power is operating to uphold the bubble, try to protect the bubble for insiders. Um, this use of criminal justice powers uh, for being um, response to unwanted mobility for nationalistic purposes. And here I was referencing Lynn Haney's work because this nationalistic purposes, I think is, can be quite broad, and this is where it can apply to different cases or different countries. So nationalistic purposes, what do we mean by that? In in Lynn Haney's work, it was about sovereignty, about Eastern European states retaining their sovereignty in the face of EU identity, and Mary Bosworth has written quite extensively about this and Emma Kaufman in the British detention centers about being part of who's a citizen and who is not, what is British identity, so this context about identity and nationalistic purposes exists there. In the Swedish and the Nordic context, I say that the welfare state is what the national purpose is. So. Penal nationalism is not just reduced to welfare state or welfare state nationalism or welfare chauvinism, if, you, if you're familiar with that term. But it's about up, up, upholding that. Of course, it's related to identity. I think that border criminologies and punishment studies have a lot to offer the understanding of migration or restrictive migration controls because it's particularly penal form of power. So that it's relying on coercive power. This, And at this point, I think, like, again, I don't, I'm not sure the government has quite cra- grasped this, That this is imposing power over another's will. It's coercive. We're basically denying uh, autonomy and deter- self-determination. And if we think about um, what democracies are, right, this is supposed to be about the recognition and realization of self-determinacy. And states, other democratic states or welfare states who block that are really um, posing challenges, right, to the ideas about democracy, which we'll return to um, at the end. But it's coercive. So, and, it's, and, and many others have written about it's violent as well, the imposition of penal harms. These are not administrative or neutral decisions. So there's much argument and debate in Sweden about, well, the government, of course, we have as a society, we have the right to decide who, who's in our, who makes up our population. Right? All democratic societies retain that right. Um, But it's not a neutral decision about who's in and who's out. It's relying on criminal justice, penal power, which is coercive. It's also penal, and I say it's effective. That's what makes it powerful. Penal power has been at the heart of state making since the early modern period. It has been the way that modern states establish themselves, right, if we think about Mm -hmm. Max Weber or Charles Charles Tilley. Um, it ha- in the contemporary period, it's using the staff, the institutions, symbolic violence, material violence, to impose right, the claims over the population. So mass migration it challenges population, right? Who, who can be part of the population? Who's on the territory? We're using the sorting mechanisms. And again, a lot of work I build on from border criminologies um, to make these arguments. Again, it's, it's about penal um, power because it involves censure and sanction kind of a core taking from Duff and the Um Zender has also written about this. The core of punishment or what makes something penal is the censure for wrongdoing, right? The state says this is wrong, or in the case of migration and border control, you are wrong, your actions are wrong, but you yourself are the wrong kind of person entering, and sanction, so some kind of imposition or, or pain that's imposed. It could be um, confinement, it could be expulsion, but it's a sanction that gets imposed. So again, it's very uh, powerful and effective. And, we've, and in a place like Sweden, which thoroughly believes in the, the rule of law, um, it seems to be legitimate because, oh, well, if they're caught up in the criminal justice system while well, the state is a legitimate actor here, then kind of reinforces, uh, it reinforces its legitimacy. Um, Penal power, as I said, right, has been central to state-making. Um, it has this uh, structuring capacity to produce political authority. So this is, again, in these moments of transition, states are coming undone at the nation-state. It is it is under threat with, with migration flows, with economic flows, and one of its principal mechanisms here is this use. So again, this is partly what makes it uh, successful. i just highlight here as well the censure and sanctuary censure and sanction aspect, this connects to the community capacity of the criminal justice system. It is sending messages, it's communicating worth, right? and if you're not worthy, again, you can be subject to this type of violence. The state, right, I wouldn't say it has a monopoly, but it is a very powerful actor in representing reality. How do we understand right, what is legitimate? It often comes from the state. So using the tools of criminal justice system at the border is sending these communication mechanisms about who's right and who's wrong, right? And this, again, these are very the, the symbolic power comes from Bourdieu. This can't be underestimated. It has a constitutive force in how we understand the world and how we act on the world. Um, and uh, Catherine, uh, I could never pronounce her name correctly, but diverge, yes, uh, making people illegal. This was fantastic book, right, which I think was an eye-opener for me, where she really tracks the history of immigration law to say it's the law that makes people illegal. Right? It's not that people are illegal. It's just these, all this process is, is making this um, illegality. C- the communicative capacity of the criminal justice system is representing reality in a way that benefits the interests of the state, and in Sweden, the way that it benefits the interests of who will preserve the welfare state. Um the yes I think the social fault lines here, right, so who's most vulnerable to this right it falls along the social fault lines it's again it 's not a kind of all or nothing scenario. We have to actually look over time across different institutions, across groups, and look where the social fault lines are and who who is most vulnerable i won 't go into this now out of interest of time, but I have a chapter that goes through this the institutional, legal um aspects of how this has occurred in Sweden. So Sweden, in the end, it basically say it has a, there's, just, there's been a, a problem with pluralism or an ambivalence around difference and belonging at the heart of the welfare state. Its foundation is cracked. Right? On the one hand, it really believes everybody's equal. On the other hand, it's really hung on to this idea that some people are just more equal than others. Right? Some are just more worthy than others. It's not that they're unequal, but we are more equal, and there's a—it's a fractured, it's a a duality or fractured nature of that ambivalence, and it's again a very long. And I argue that ambivalence has never been—I don't think it's been properly recognized, so it hasn't been properly fixed. The social diagnosis, right? Hasn't unless they read my book, um, hasn't hasn't made the front page yet. Um, but the the diagnosis of what's really happening, like right, the kind of problems with pluralism, and this is, I'm focusing on membership and migration, but this also is true for religion, different religious differences um, in Sweden, right? So there's all across different kinds of groups, the ideas about what what constitutes a plural society um, is, is is challenging for that pop, for that society for that population. Excuse me, for that population. Um, degrees I have here, five degrees of foreignness. I'll just highlight that here. In Sweden, again, it's there's a belief that everybody's equal, but in the, if you come from the outside and newly arrived or a migrant or you have a foreign background, it's very difficult to ever shake off that foreign background. And it's not a source in Sweden, the, the hyphenated identity. This is not something of, of pride. It's something of, of conflict and of argument. Um, and it's very difficult, even for long-term residents, even who've become citizens, who are citizens, to ever shake off that sense that somehow they're still foreign, um, not quite belonging to the society. So there's a a deep um, ambivalence there, which makes particular people more vulnerable to this uh, penal power, right, in the using, using of the criminal justice tools. So this is a slide from policing the, uh, called Policing the Refugee Crisis. So, if we think about, what, we had asylum seekers coming in, um, we had the police there at the border, meeting them, bringing them into reception centers. And I put this here both just to illustrate that, in fact, there were these criminal justice tools being used, but then also to highlight the communicative capacity of the criminal justice system. So this is the police rather than the Red Cross. This is the police rather than the migration agents. Why aren't the migration agents there? Escorting people, right? This is the police and they're highly visible. So you might say, well, they're providing security and they're going to bring them into the reception center. Sweden is a country which had a very low visibility with policing, but again, a source of pride. With the last few years with migration, this has changed. We've become much more visible. Um, at the border, the territorial border, bringing in refugees or asylum seekers, but also in the city center in the last few years. So, checking for ID, checking to see if you have a legal right to remain. And this was a, a program which was very controversial, which was basically, some critics um, argued that how they would check, randomly check. IDs to see if anyone had a legal right to remain in the country they were looking for people with outstanding deportation orders. Well this, uh, w- was it a coincidence that everyone was foreign looking um, or was it you know part of the policing strategy? And this, this is if you've been to Stockholm, this is in T-centralen, the central station at the heart of Sweden and above is a big public square. So this is, this isn't happening at the territorial border, but that border control and policing and membership is occurring right in, the, in the city the city centre the increased use of um, confinement. So um, is this a prison or is this a detention center? Um, it's, uh, it is a detention center, but it um, doesn't look that much different than, a, than, a, than a, um, a prison. This is a detention center for um, immig- people who have immigration violations and people who are being expelled from the country. Sweden for a long time had very low numbers of people in detention center, but this is, this has increased. And they've been at maximum capacity, and so they've now put people who have expulsion orders in the prisons, in a couple of spots in the prisons. And then some of those, not all of them, some of them have ended up in 23 hours uh, confinement, um, solitary confinement. Not the image of, you know, the nice, mild Nordic exceptionalism that we've come to take for granted. Just this piece, excuse me, on the um, confinement so this is, uh, you know, there's barbed wire. This one you can't see barbed wire, but many of them have barbed wire around them, the security, there's high walls and concrete walls. And those who study the prison, those who study detention center, uh, can see some parallels. And again, Mary's written extensively about the ways detention centers are similar and the ways that they are different. Um, but in Sweden, I just highlight that being, the use of them has been increased um, in new ways. This is an older pattern of the foreign nationals. I have a chapter, a long just discussion about all the empirical details about how right, those who are ethnic minorities, um, migrants, non-citizens, ending up in the criminal justice system. This is in within the traditional prison system, percent foreign nationals, over 30% um, of the prison population. Um, eviction. So this is uh, another kind of border control use of these restrictive aspects. This is in relation to um, the Roma population, Roma who have come from Bulgaria and Romania, who are EU citizens. Um, So they are not subjected to deportations, but they have been subjected to evictions um, on public order grounds. So I have a a paper, a separate paper on called Nordic Vagabonds, where I take up that issue in much more detail. But this also highlights, I think, really at the core about who the welfare state is for. Mm So you have very, you know, very poor people coming from Romania and Bulgaria who are citizens of the EU, but they are treated as if they are disposable, right? Don't belong. They have no access to um, re- any public resources. In Sweden, you have to have a person number in order to access the welfare state, and so the welfare state is highly developed, right? If you're if you're an alcoholic, you've lost your job, you you beat your kids. The, the, wealth, the social services is dev- they can put you in programs they can record you they can get you help if you do not have a um, person number if you're not registered legally living there you cannot access any of that a homeless shelter so EU citizens they have a legal right to be there for three months but they're not legally registered <coughs> as residents and so they can't access any of those uh, benefits so this is it's very clear who the welfare state is is for. Um, in this context, and they've been subjected to, you know, camp clearing and uh, uh, evictions. Removal from the territory, right? And this, these, have, these have increased. So the, the slide that I showed you with the policing membership downstairs, the checking IDs in the tunnel, in the subway metro, this is upstairs, right? So it's a public square. So you have this kind of proliferation of these types of tools going on in the, in the city center. Um, This is a, uh, I argue it in the book, and I would argue here too, this is in relation to the Nordic exceptionalism piece, that if we take into account this proliferation, using of these criminal justice tools, right, to respond to problems of unwanted mobility, we really have to recalibrate our understanding of how penal power is used in the Nordic context. And this is just to show um, the green pie chart here. This is expulsions. Right, and the blue is prison and the red is detention. So when other scholars have looked at the Nordic penal regime, they f- focused on the prisons, but that's, just, that's a smaller part of this entire system. So if we can appreciate right, how criminal justice tools are being used um, in this broader context of migration control, um, this will change, I think, I argue, it changes our understanding of what that system is doing and who, it is, who is it for. So why does any of this matter? Um, I think it matters, I mean, to understand this phenomenon, I mean, the dramatic event. I mean, why would Sweden do that? Um, It's doing that to protect itself, right? To preserve the welfare state. Um, In terms of our understanding about the role of criminal justice system, I think this is also, again, incredibly important and something that we have to contribute. These are not neutral decisions, but nor is it just a power operation. It's a particular form of power. And in the Nordic context, these things, they challenge this Nordic exceptionalism. These are not mild and humane systems. There are certainly elements of mildness and humaneness, um, but there are illiberal elements within, um, infringements on liberty, self-determination, um, these pains and harms that are imposed, and insecurity on others, um, and a willingness to impose insecurity on others to preserve, uh, preserve what's inside going outside of Sweden and thinking about European penality, the principles of European penality, well, these developments that are occurring here and other places, this also challenges something that we've taken for, maybe taken for granted as, uh, especially European penality in contrast to, the, say, the American case, which were known to be more restrictive, to value human dignity, to be inclusionary. But when we take into account these border control measures in, co- in conjunction with the criminal justice system, this has taken on an expansive logic. Right? These things are not retracting, they are expanding. So there's more forms, right? Detention expanding, putting people in prison, new forms of policing. This is an expansive logic rather than a restrictive logic. It's also exclusionary, and I would say based it's it based to some extent on a dehumanized view of the other, but in the process it Further dehumanizes, right? When we've subjected um, some of the some uh, people who are seeking, claiming their rights as political subjects, when we subject them to this policing, this is also part of a dehumanizing process. So it really challenges questions this idea about human dignity. <laughs> Ideas about democracy, right? So in Sweden, I, I didn't really develop this here, but there's also, I think, a troubling decoupling of crime and punishment. So I'm not talking about the criminalization of migration. It's more the penalization of migration. And they just skipped over the crime, right? So it's subjecting um, migration violation, those who are being exposed to detention, um, but also this uh, expulsion. And again, Sweden is a society based on the rule of law. This is a high value in the society. When we start to decouple what the justice system is based on, this can be trouble for democracy, in a political terms, the violation of the parity principle, I think, is really striking and problematic. So this is not only true in Sweden, but this is a true, I think, across the board. The parity principle is those who are most affected by a policy, policing, prison, um, expulsion, um, refugee policy, they should have a say, a fair say, in the development of those policies. And what we see in the contemporary situation is those who are most affected, asylum seekers, people on the move, Have the least ability to actually implement and write those policies. They are in a political vacuum. Now, some migration scholars might say, "Well, they assert their political subjectivity by entering the territory." Well, the state then says, "You've entered the territory. Now you must leave." So it hasn't changed the policies, and there's a huge political vacuum there in terms of how uh, refugees or asylum seekers can impact and change. And I have a chapter on civil society movements that can answer. answer in the in the break. So just in closing, I think it, it matters for a lot of different reasons, but just kind of thinking about implications for the future. So these, these policies, this integration of criminal justice with border control, with preservation of the welfare state, this has uh, some problems for democracy. Right? It can lead to destabilizing, right? this violation of the crime and punishment, violation of the parity principle, um, going against democratic principles of equality, the proliferation of political vacuums, um, and allow, that this is allowed to go on. Right? I also think it spells trouble for how democracies stabilize themselves. And then there are some outstanding comparative questions. Um, how does Sweden, you know, how does it compare to other countries? Is this better or different? Is it, um, what are the transnational or global forces going on within Sweden? So Sweden is not alone in this. Um, That's not the argument, but my idea or my argument or my case was to try to understand what makes Sweden tick, what's meaningful to the people involved. So it doesn't mean that they are not impacted by global forces, but that the meaning itself tends to be intrinsic of how they understand their society, what their their values are. So it's kind of a a question for kind of leading off into my next project to kind of take up some of these outstanding issues that I um, did not answer Did a not answer in the book, but many other ones were. So, uh, (laughs) thank you very much. Thank you.